Welcome to another episode of Sisters in Conversation. I'm your host, Debel Lomotani. I'm an attorney by profession and a founder of a platform called Sister in Law, which is a platform dedicated to empowering women through legal education. On today's episode, I have Jabu Kanza. Jabu is an advocate and a former Constitutional Court Law Clerk to Justice Jagda and the Acting Justice Rogers. She has worked in the legal field for the past seven years in both practicing and non-practicing roles. She is originally from the small town of Ferienheng, where she completed her primary school education. She thereafter completed her high school at the National School of the Arts, followed by the University of the Witwatersrand, where she completed her Bachelor of Laws degree. After graduating, she pursued her articles and became an admitted attorney. She was then called to the bar in 2018, where she successfully completed her pupillage. She became admitted as an advocate and registered with the Johannesburg Society of Advocates. She is passionate about the law in all its various forms. She practices mainly in the fields of general and commercial litigation, as well as public interest law. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Jabu. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you, Devella? Good, good. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come share your story with us. And um, yeah, how, how has the first quarter of the year treated you so far? Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's really great to be here and to get to share with you guys. Um, the first quarter has been okay. Um, I was for from like January, beginning of January until mid-January, I was um, hospitalized. So it was, I was off to a slow start, but I fully recovered now and I'm back at Chambers. Um, so yeah, so, so far so good. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Uh, well, not wonderful, but sorry to hear about that, but wonderful that things have picked up and that you are doing much better. Um, yeah. So yeah, I invited you on the podcast because we had a few listeners who are really interested in finding out more about Jabu, finding out more about your career path, um, and just finding out how they can basically occupy the space that you're currently occupying at the moment. So can you take us through who Jabu is? Let's start from the very beginning. Who is Jabu? Where were you born and raised? How many siblings do you have? Which, which sure. primary school, high school did you go to? And then take us through the reasons why you decided to study law. Right. Um, I, first of all, I find it very interesting that um, people uh, would want to know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's quite interesting. You, but yeah, you know how I, social media is. It's, it's, it's yeah, right. Broke, it's like broken it's, down the walls. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, but I'm always happy to share, you know, uh, and I think platforms such as yours are great for that sort of thing, because I do often get um, messages via Instagram or Facebook or other social media platforms where sometimes people, different people are asking me the same question. So I think platforms like yours are yeah. great because then I can answer a lot of those questions and just, you know, use the centralized platform for that. Um, but anyway, I am... Um, as everybody, or as you know, uh, my name is Jabu, and I'm originally from the Val for anything. Um, it's a small town south of Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. I went to primary school there, but um, when I went to high school, I came to Joburg, 
I attended the National School of the Arts. Um, and thereafter, I pursued my law degree. And I know I often get the question, how did you leave law? How did you leave um, art school and <laughs> transition into, <laughs> into law school? I get asked, I get, people ask me that quite a bit. Um, but my answer to that is often that, you know, I think the two are actually um, similar in a few respects. You know, both of them, if you think about it, involve the art of persuasion, right? Okay. So if you're acting on stage, you're trying to persuade your audience. And in court, you're trying to persuade the judge to rule in your favor. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so I, after the National School of the Arts, attended um, this, where I read for my LLB. Um, thereafter, I did my articles, became an admitted attorney. Um, and in 2018, I was called to the bar, mm -hmm. did my pupillage passed my pupillage, uh, practiced for two years before taking a sabbatical to go clerk in the Constitutional Court. Um, my term started in the beginning January 2021 and it ended um, in December 2021. So I'm officially back at the bar now. Um, and yeah, that's in a nutshell what I've been up to. All right, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about um, your varsity life, uh, which moments stood out for you, whether it was a bad or a good experience? How, how, how was your campus life? Um, varsity was, I mean, it, honestly, it felt like it just like flashed right by me. You know, the four years went by very, very quickly. Um, I think at the time, I, I wasn't, I think I would say probably as invested as I was in practicing law or doing the law, right? Mm -hmm. So my decision, um, the reason why I decided to study law, I didn't, you know, a lot of people say they always knew from when they were mm -hmm. quite young. Um, I don't think that was necessarily the case with me. Mm -hmm. um, it occurred to me around about high school, I think grade nine, 10, somewhere there um that maybe this is something i should try um and really my decision was just based on you know my skill set what i was good at and what kind of matched what i you know just naturally was inclined to do mm -hmm. and so i decided to do law and really my decision was based mainly on that right so it wasn't like i was passionate about it or you know that sort of thing um but you know i went on to study I completed my degree, that was all fine. But I think the longer I've been in the profession and with each year and um, the deeper you get into it, my, my interest and passion for it has crystallized mm. um, in ways that I think weren't apparent when I was still in varsity. Mm. Um, the best, I think the, the first time when I was like, okay, actually, I think I could really enjoy this was in law clinic because then you actually get to experience what it's like to be a lawyer. You're consulting with clients for the mm. first time ever because everything prior to that was theory, right? Um, and when you get to law clinic, you hear people's real life stories. Mm -mm. Um, you want to assist and now, you know, you're sort of honing your skills to be able to do that legally. 
And so I think for me, that's when the penny probably first dropped to be like, hey, this is um, you know important work and this is something that I think you would enjoy and um, hopefully excel in. So um, yeah, and Law Clinic only happens in like the fourth year. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so it was quite a journey before the penny dropped. Yeah, all right. And then um, you, 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 you were first admitted as an attorney. So which would, have mean, uh, which would have meant that you had to have done your articles. Um, Correct. Yeah. How, how was your experience during articles? And was your experience the reason you then decided to convert um, to, to being an advocate? And then can you tell us a little bit um, more about that conversion? I often get questions of um, if I've been admitted as an attorney, can I then um, become an advocate without having to do my pupillage and so forth? So can you please just explain to us that the process that you had to follow and, and, and why you had that change in heart? Right. So yes, I did my articles for two years. I had to write board exams, which I did. Um, I successfully completed my board exams and then I became admitted. I stayed um, to practice uh, after admission. And it was only, like I said, in 2018, my admission I think was in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. So I didn't go straight from um, articles into advocacy. Uh, which I think some people do or have done. Um, so I was actually an attorney first. And um, once I had practiced as an attorney, though briefly, um, you know, I had encountered a few advocates that I would brief from my firm. And um, I think that was my real introduction to, to um, being an advocate. And it just, you know, going to court with them, there was, there was this one... Um, particular female advocate I just can't recall her name now but she just really you know just watching her and watching just how she you know she was an independent practitioner she worked for herself she used to argue the cases mm. it just really struck me as something that um, I yeah I just feel like I gravitated towards that and I started you know doing my research finding out what you know what does it take to become an advocate and then I learned about this thing called pupillage, um, which for those who don't know is um, 12 months of intensive training without an income, unfortunately. <laughs> um, sure. So then I did that, yeah. And that also, you have to write exams again. Um, and then only once you successfully complete that, can you then be um, enrolled as a practicing advocate. And yeah, that's the journey I followed. Um, so I didn't, there, there wasn't a conversion in the sense that, um, you know, I don't think you can ever evade pupillage is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. So pupillage is a prerequisite to becoming an advocate. You have to go through, or at least a practicing advocate, you have to go through that training first. And then um, once you've passed your bar exam, um, you then get, actually, you get admitted as an advocate first, mm -hmm. but now with the new, um, the Legal Practice Act, it's changed. I, as, as at the time I went, it was before the Legal Practice Act ca came into effect. Um, at the time, it was still, um, it was the act uh, preceding that. And in terms of that act, uh, we had to get admitted earlier on in the year 
because you can't appear in court without having been admitted. Mm. Um, and a lot of our training required us to appear in court. So um, that's why we had to get admitted um, early in the year so that for the rest of the, the year when you're training or when you're doing appearances, you're able to do that because you're already on the roll. Um, but anyway, now, sorry, is that still the position oh. with the LPA? With the LPA, um, I know it's changed. I'm not quite certain anymore because I went through the process under a different dispensation. Yeah. But um, I think I think with the LPA, you first have to um, complete what they call practical vocational training. Mm. And I stand to be corrected. Mm. Um, but I think now what it has done is it's unified the process that attorneys follow mm. and the process that advocates follow. Because with attorneys, you do your two years of your articles and then only can you get admitted. Mm. With advocates, um, if you were doing a pupillage, you first had to get admitted so that you could do your court appearances. So now I think under the Legal Practice Act, you first have to whether you're an attorney or advocate, undergo your practical vocational training first and then get admitted. Okay. Um, I think right. that, that that's what my very vague understanding is, but um, someone who maybe has gone through the process under this new dispensation can maybe clarify that. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. It's worth, um, uh, it's, it's worth uh, any interested party doing some research in. You, if, yes. if you're already in in this field, then you know that you constantly have to do your own research, even though you've read something on on online or or heard something online. It's worth doing your own research. So Absolutely. you also, um, in the same breath, you also mentioned that um, there's no uh, income during that one year of training, and I think a lot of people may not be aware of this. How can somebody who um, comes from a uh, you know disadvantaged financial background but really wants to pursue um, advocacy, the advocacy route, you know, mm. partake in yeah. privilege, you know, without feeling like the there is this big barrier of no income, um, and you know, yeah. just knowing that for uh, black like women, it's particularly tough to break into um, this profession. What are the steps that somebody who who doesn't have the financial benefit of pursuing, you know, pupillage do to be part of the program? Yeah, so you raise a very good point. Um, and that has been something that's been discussed before as, you know, a potential barrier uh, or that makes um, going to the bar, going to the bar exclusionary. Mm -hmm. But um, I know with the Johannesburg Society of Advocates, uh, which is the bar that I am a member of, they do offer a stipend um, for uh, people who are not able to carry themselves financially throughout the pupillage year. But my primary advice to anybody who wants to do pupillage is that you need to prepare for it financially before you go, right? So it's not just something you can decide, you know, very haphazardly to say, oh, I'm going to do my pupillage mm. um, in a couple of months. You need to, at least I would say for a year prior to that, start saving. Um, some people I know have prepared for it for longer than that, right? If it's something that you wanna do and you're sure that you want to do it, 
um, whatever job that you're currently in, start putting away money for at least 18 months. Um, because in as much as you practice, in, in as much as pupillage is 12 months, you still have to factor in other things like how advocates only get paid after three months of um, receiving the instruction, right? Yeah. So you still, even after you've qualified, when you go to courts and when you've received an instruction, you still might only get paid three months thereafter. Mm -hmm. And also remember, you're still building a practice. So depending on your background, you may or may not have that much work in the beginning. And if you don't have that much work, you still have to have some of those savings from prior to your arrival. Um, you know, use those to carry you throughout those months. And that's why they say, prepare yourself for at least 18 months. Mm. Um, yeah, so I mean, there is a stipend, but I don't, I don't think the stipend is the answer. You know, I know that it's awarded to very few people who are in extreme dire constraints. Yeah. I um, don't know if, you know, there might be a means test of sort that they will do and you may not qualify for that. And so, um, to me, I would say, uh, if this is something you want to do, prepare for it for at least a year before, you know, that's what I did. Um, I, I saved up, I did have assistance from, um, friends and family, but, um, primarily you just need to prepare yourself financially to carry yourself throughout those months. Mm -hmm. And of course, just cut down. I had to cut down on a lot of things. Um, I had to, bring down my monthly expenses to just under 10k <laughs> so that means you know just like cutting down your lifestyle um you know on things that you can do without yeah. in order to pursue um the goal that you you want to pursue sure and apart from the stipend do you know if there are any um private uh, stipends, if I can call it such, like, do you know if there are any senior councils out there who sort of offer like a bursary, if I can put it that way? So somebody who can basically help you cover your at least um, travel expenses or, or you know, just a sum of your expenses during your pupillage because they really believe in you and think that you've got great potential. Are there any any sort of, you know, programs like that that you know of? So, I mean, I've heard of um, people getting assistance from, um, you know, seniors, but, but it's, it's, it's not a structured program. Mm. Um, it would, something like that, an arrangement like that would probably arise out of a personal relationship, right? So if maybe you yeah, worked sure. with that senior before and maybe you were an attorney and they've gotten to know you over the years while you were briefing them, and they saw potential in you, it would be their prerogative to help you. But there's no like set um, program that's funded by senior council that I am aware of. Um, I do know that people raise funds in several ways. You know, I've seen people um, reach out to people on social media. I've seen all kinds of ways that people have raised funds, but um, there's no apart from the stipend and this and I speak now just for the Johannesburg Society of Advocates. There are other bars like Pabasa, um, the Pan-African Bar of South Africa. Mm. I don't know if um, they and also Pretoria Society of Advocates. I don't know if maybe they have other programs um, that, you know, that do more than just provide the stipend. 
Um, it anybody who who wants to apply for pupillage must consider the several bars that are around, right? So um, there's the Johannesburg Society of Advocates, there's Pabasa, there's the Pretoria Society of Advocates, and one for like every province. So um, different rules ap apply to different bars. And I know um, that with Joburg, it's just the stipend. And if there are other funds that you can raise externally, um, you know, if you have a personal relationship with a senior counsel or a mentor or someone who believes in you, um, then of course they're welcome to assist you. But there's no formal structured program of that nature in our bar, as far as I'm aware of. All right, thank you. Thank you so much for those insights, Jabu. Um, and then during, during your um, seven year tenure in the profession, you were also a clerk at the Constitutional Court. Can you tell us a little bit about your time spent at Constitutional Court? And then also because you've been in um, all three um, spheres basically, so you've done, you've done practice, you've now you're now busy doing litigation um, through advocacy, and then you've also done extensive research during your time as a clerk. Can you just tell us about some of the disciplines that overlap in, in, in the three different backgrounds, if I can call it such. Right. Um, okay, so I'll start with my time at the court. Um, like I said, when you clock at the constitutional court, it's for a fixed term of 12 months, unless your contract gets extended um, for different reasons. Um, some clerks, some judges sometimes need that particular clock to stay on for a longer period or um, you know, there can be extensions, but the standard time is 12 months. Um, so I was there for 12 months with Justice Jafta. Um, as you would know, Justice Jafta left the court together with uh, Justice Mokhweng um, Mokhweng and Chief Justice Mokhweng Mokhweng and Justice Khanpepe. And um, my judge left in October. Uh, so after him, I got an acting judge, Acting Justice Rogers. Um, my time at court was amazing, uh, Tivolo. It's really, really a great place to be. It's a place that I would recommend for um, any uh, junior um, legal practitioner mm. uh, because you really get to be at the forefront, you know, of the law at the highest court um, in the land. You know, there's nothing quite like it. Um, my highlights at the court probably was just, it's such a, a really good environment. And the reason why I stress that I think it would be great for junior practitioners is mm. um, it's, it's a great place to foster and hone your, your um, shall I say, your skills and confidence. Yeah, because often what you get is um, attorneys, or, or, or candidate attorneys who just, you know, got to the big firms or any firms actually, not, not, not the big firm, but practice can be quite cutthroat for someone who's just fresh out of varsity. Absolutely. So if, yeah. you're, if, you're, if you're able, you know, I would say get some work experience such as the constitutional court or, um, you know, something prior to, uh, doing your articles because that way I think you're better prepared and especially in an environment like the court the, the, the judges really do value your input 
and they also ensure that you're learning throughout the experience. Of course, with me, it was slightly different because I had already been in practice before. Um, but, you know, it doesn't take away from the experience because prior to that, I had mainly just practiced in commercial litigation. So it was quite interesting for me to now delve into um, public law mm. and constitutional litigation. And that's my main reason of why I actually went there in the first place. But yeah, um, yeah, going to the court was, it was really amazing. It was an adventure. It was a risk. <laughs> it was a chance to really grapple with what constitutionalism means. Mm. You know, the very same constitutionalism that enabled me as a black female to, to, to be allowed to practice as a lawyer or as an advocate. Mm. Um, yeah, and it was really just an opportunity to grow within my field and to work with the sharpest legal minds in, in our country. So yeah, so in a, in a briefly, that's how I would describe my time at the court. Um, yeah, I think there, there was a follow-up question. <laughs> Um, I was basically been. saying, so what are some of the disciplines that have overlapped um, with you being in practice, with you being an advocate, and with you having been a, a, a clerk at the Concord? Right, right. Um, yeah, they are def definitely disciplines that overlap. For all three, any lawyer will tell you there's a lot of reading, lots and lots and lots of reading, um, pleadings, documents, records. Uh, you can't be a lawyer and not want to read. Um, so you have to yeah, yeah. know that that's going to take a long time, long hours. Um, but if you really enjoy what you do, you, you won't mind that too much. Um, and you would have really been exposed to it through your studies in any event. Um, you need to be able to be a critical thinker. Um, you know, you need to be able to uh, read and analyze legislation, mm -hmm. um, the common law and a case law and be able to apply that to whatever particular case that you're working on. You know, not every, every many cases might appear on the face of it to be similar, but if you're a critical thinker, you'd more often than not be able to pick up the nuances and how one case is distinguishable from another. Um, and that's something that you need, um, whether you're at the bar, because you need to be able to pick up on those when you're arguing the cases, or even um, when you are talking. Uh, I know for our judge, we used to do research and we used to do memos, and often we'd be faced with all kinds of legal questions, and you need to be able to analyze how one case differs from another, um, and be able to, you know, just sort of... Um, articulate that as well. Um, so yeah, so they, they, they are out of the three, um, definitely overlaps. I would say maybe the difference um, from when I was a candidate attorney to my time at um, the court and also my time at the bar is just the differing levels of the um, administrative duties, right? So. Um, as an attorney, well, in all three, you need to be quite organized, but mm. I would say more so as an attorney, because, um, you know, as an attorney, you're doing the, the, the your briefing counsel, you are doing the serving and filing, although that's different now, because, you know, things have moved to virtual, 
Um, so I know now people just load things onto case lines, which is a system that's used in court, or they just email each other. I think it's it's simplified the system rather than you know actually driving to a law firm and delivering the document. Um, um, you know there are those those slight differences, but at the end of the day, in all three roles, you're a lawyer, right? You may be an attorney, you may be a clerk, you may be an advocate, but at the end of the day, you're a lawyer. And in all of those roles, you need to be organized. You need to be able to sit through the long hours of reading and understanding. You need to be able to think critically and be able to apply different cases, um, different scenarios, um, um, you know, different legislation to to whatever case you 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 that's currently on your desk. So um, so yeah, they they def definitely are overlaps between the three roles. All right, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, and now just, you know, moving to some of the, um, I don't know if I can call it social ills or some of the ills that exist in, 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 in corporate, in the corporate landscape as a whole. Um, I just want to touch a little bit on uh, issues of transformation, you know, and yes. what you um, have maybe observed in, in, in the seven years that you've been in the profession um, in the different spaces that you've occupied, what are some of the practical steps that you think uh, can be taken for us to really uh, achieve a, a transformed, um, uh, a transformed, what can I say? Help me with the word, English bundles. <laughs> um, basically, yeah, basically to achieve transformation in, in the profession. What are some of the practical steps that you think we really need to maybe hold um, some firms accountable? Um, how do we get women who look like us uh, to hold um, top positions at law firms? Because it's always good and well that in the beginning, we hire 25 candidate attorneys and 17 yeah. are black but um, mm. only 10 get retained and then only five progress to directorship. How can we actually make sure that most of the people who start off as CAs also have a really good chance um, of finding their name on the letterhead 10 years from, you know, when they start their profession? Yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen a shift hey, from when I started articles to to where I am now. Mm. Um, when I started articles, it the environment in which I was in, I was the only black female professional. And it just felt like such a foreign environment. You know, um, I didn't feel like I fit in. I, it, it and, and the image of uh, a black lawyer a black female lawyer wasn't something that I'd been exposed to as much as I have now, you know. Um, and I'm happy about that. Uh, over the years, I think um, law firms have started to realize that, uh, it, you know, things can't keep going the way that they were. And what I've what I've realized now at the bar, I don't know so much about. Um, law firms because I haven't been in one in quite some time now mm. but at the bar um, you know in the Johannesburg Society of Ad Advocates there's something called the third council rule and that's a rule that requires um, 
an attorney to take the third counsel in the matter, if, if there's a big complex matter, right? And it requires more than one counsel. So say there's your senior counsel and then there'll be a junior counsel. And then if there's a need for the third counsel, that third counsel must be a black person. Mm. That is what the third counsel rule says. Um, and the third counsel rule was introduced a few years ago. I think it was through the um, Advocates for Transformation, AFT, which is a uh, organization which protects the interests of black advocates at the JSA. Um, so, you know, there they, they are rules like that that are put in place, which should be adhered to, but I know sometimes they are not. Um, and I think that's where ultimately the problem lies, right? Is how do you enforce these rules um, where you see a big matter of national importance being run by three white male counsel, mm, mm, you know, sure. which in this day and age surely can't be, you know, it just cannot be. Um, but, you know, in my group of advocates, I practice in a group called Advocates Group 61. I know that they definitely try to bring on black juniors, um, black female juniors anyway, that's been my experience, in all kinds of matters, your big complex um, matters that transcend borders to, you know, um, your matters that are in, in, in the courts here in South Africa. So I've been fortunate enough to be brought, brought into um, all kinds of various of matters where a third, uh, counsel was required or just any junior counsel was required um but yeah i think i think there need to be structures in law firms i mean i don't know what they have now but you know at the bar like i say there's the aft mm. something of of you know that kind of equivalent an organization that does that kind of work to make sure that the interests of um females and not just black females females uh, as a whole are, are are represented in in those law firms um, because while there is a shift, I don't know if there are proper mechanisms to enforce, um, those rules that were brought about to create the shift, you know? Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I think that would be something that, you know, someone needs to take up. Uh, there's a lot of lip service to this issue of transformation, but I don't know if it's actually being done within the corporate space. I can say um that in the bar i think there are strides being made i know that um the intake in the last few years they've been more black females than they have um historically mm. so that's also something that was driven by aft you know the transformation committees and aft um so so i really have to give uh the bar credit um from that point of view of course, I'm not saying it's perfect because there are instances where you see teams that are getting really great work and that do not involve any um, uh, black females or African people. And that's obviously something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um, but there are strides that are being taken and the, the legal profession certainly looks and feels very different to how it was when I started my articles. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I, I really, really enjoy seeing black female um, practitioners, you know, taking pride in their work and in the fact that they're lawyers and, um, you know, just being very visible because I think that 
creates or conduces an environment where the next black, um, you know, black girl who's in varsity sees that and thinks, hey, I can do this too. You know, it's not as foreign as what it felt when I was doing my articles. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's a very welcome shift and that should continue because this is a space that we are very capable of occupying and a space that we should continue to occupy. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing those insights, Jabu. Um, I think what, what I really want um, to stress, though, is that it's yes, it's been over 20 years, but our democracy is still failing you. And a lot of people that um, occupy the legal profession are still people who are very much from um, pre-democracy days, right? And, and sometimes it really takes a while to teach an old dog new tricks and yeah. realizing that um, issues of transformation also aren't a final destination and that there will continuously need to be work being done on ensuring yeah. that, you know, as many Black people as possible and as many Black women as possible can continue occupying these spaces. We have to realize that this is just one long, never-ending journey. It's, it's transform We're not going to get to a place where we say, okay, good, we are done being transformed um, let's chill now, you know, we have to consistently yeah. keep fighting to make sure that um, we we allow everybody um, to occupy yeah. these spaces. Definitely. And I mean, that's also one of the, I think, problems with coming to the bar is, you know, the fact that you have to undergo pupillage and, you know, you're not going to get an income that can be a barrier to a lot of quote unquote previously disadvantaged people we know that in the context of south africa that's more often than not black people right Absolutely. and so what you what you find is it's is this profession that is you know has a lot of our caucasian counterparts because they're able to mm. you know mm. go through this year and be carried by their parents in circumstances mm -hmm. where for a lot of us mm -hmm. who maybe even went varsity through NASFIS or, you know, bursaries and are not able to graduate in our families. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that is definitely a barrier or, you know, that's why the bar has at times been criticized as being exclusionary mm -hmm. it's because of this one particular rule that, you know, can block out so many people who might really be talented and brilliant, but because they don't have um, the necessary financial means and income to carry them through the year, might end up, you know, not being able to come, um, you know, when they want to come, um, you know, might have to, or, or ever for that matter, when they want to come or ever, which, which is something that I personally think needs to be looked at, um, you know, by, by the various bars. Mm. and the powers that be <laughs> mm, 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 absolutely yeah. sure yeah thank you thank you for this um very important conversation uh definitely going to continue using platforms like the one i have running um, yeah. keep having these conversations like i said um we we're gonna have to constantly keep doing the work we're not going to arrive at this destination and and, and all just take a break we we're gonna 
continue having these conversations, continue reminding ourselves of the importance of ensuring yeah. that um, the women uh, who come behind us, who come after us, are also able to almost easily occupy these spaces. It doesn't have to be difficult for all of us to get a foot in the door. Sure, absolutely, 100%. Um, and I also try to um, embody that as best as I can. Obviously, I don't have a platform like yours, but I do get, um, you know, uh, not just females, but, you know, several um, students who are still in varsity who ask so many questions. And, you know, what I've realized is that there, what, what seems quite apparent to me or people who are already in the profession is not that obvious to um, people who are still in varsity. Mm. You know, there's a lot of demystifying that needs to be done and platforms mm. such as this are very helpful in that sense because you get to explain what, you know, it entails to be at the bar. You get to explain what it entails to be an advocate um, at the constitutional court and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, you'd be surprised how, you know, students, they, 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 they aren't sure of a lot of what happens um, once you've already qualified. Mm. And I think it's important to, to impart that knowledge um, just so that, as you say, the women that come after us should not you know, struggle or go through what some of us had to go through to get yeah. to where we are. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Jabu. So um, we do have Letra Honolo joining us in today's conversation. She recently started her articles and she has a few questions for you just to close off this conversation for us. Hi, Letra Honolo, how are you? Hi, Estebello. Hi, Jabu. Amma, thank you. How are you? Well, thank you, Letra Honolo. Yes, Can I go ahead? Yes, introduce yourself. Uh, introduce yourself. Uh, who are you? <laughs> um, what do you do? And then you can pose your questions to Jabu. Um, I am a first year CA, or as the LPA puts it, a first year candidate legal practitioner. I just graduated from VIDS and I am really excited to be sitting in on this conversation. I think there were some great nuggets to pick up on. I have about three questions for you, Jabu. I don't know if I should ask them all at once or ask them each. Um, how do I do this time. one at a time? Okay, yeah. just picking up from the transformation conversation that we were just having, I think as Ustebello said, they will, it's continuous work. And I think we're reaching certain stalemates that we didn't think we would. And one of these stalemates that I have re realized or um, taken note of is that we can keep pushing our, our white counterparts to do something about representation in all the spheres of law. Then we get to a place where there is representation, but then there is um, black on black um, lack of transformation where you have things like pull her down syndrome. Mm. How do we as the people pushing for transformation also keep ourselves accountable mm. internally? That would be my first question. Sure. That's a very, very interesting question. Sure. And that is quite unfortunate that such exists, right? I personally have never experienced the pull me down syndrome. Um, but I think you're right. I think 
um, in as much as we're holding our white counterparts accountable in, you know, roping us in matters and, um, you know, bringing us on different cases, I think it's quite important that we also develop our own structures, right? So to not necessarily completely depend on our white counterparts to transform the space, but to also um, start to do it ourselves. I've seen a lot of, um, or not a lot yet, but quite a few um, black female owned law firms that are coming up. Um, and I think we internally also need to do that work and propel that agenda in as much as we do um, holding our white counterparts to, to, to account. Um, it's very unfortunate, this pull me down syndrome. Uh, what I, I can say I've experienced at the bar that may be similar or akin to what you describe is a situation where in the uh, groups that are predominantly um, that predominantly house black people, uh, what I've I've come to 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 realize is that because a lot of the work that comes to us right comes from white law firms, um, especially the big matters, those guys brief the white advocates right. And the firms that do brief um, the black people, you may find that the matters aren't always as big or don't require as many counsel. And what, what that does is there isn't as much capacity um, to rope in other black people into that matter, right? Because you may only, you, you may get a brief that only requires one counsel or that doesn't enable you to bring across another black council. And that's quite an unfortunate situation um, that we find ourselves in. They say they, they, there's, there's a running joke that I've heard that like in some of those groups, people hoard the work to themselves. So not so much pull me down, but also not as um, easily prepared to rope you in only because there isn't that much capacity. And that again, goes back to where the work is coming from, right? The source of the work. So it's really, really deep rooted thing. Um, I'm not so sure that the, the pull me down syndrome is something that is actively going on at the bar, but I do know that sometimes um, black advocates do not or do not have the capacity to rope in um, other black advocates only because the work is maybe not as much or is not, um, you know, the matter is not so big in scope that it can bring in more people. Um, so I don't think there's any malicious intent behind it, but it's just a matter of capacity. Um, and that's, yeah, that's most unfortunate, but it really goes back to where the source of the work is. Thank you for that. My second question is regarding constitutional law clerkship. I find that amongst my peers, there is a growing interest to apply for clerkship, but it right. seems like such a mystified area of law to practice in where people really think that they can't access that space, maybe because of credentials. Most of the people who, who apply for clerkship have LLMs from different jurisdictions and just you with your with your South African LLM, you often feel inadequate to apply to um, clerkship. So my first question is whether or not you would motivate someone with an LLB to apply straight for clerkship, and how can you de demystify the space so that more young people 
feel empowered enough to apply for clerkship. Right. So, you know, what is, what's so crazy to me is how um, accessible the information is, or at least what I was saying to Dibelo earlier, what seems apparent and obvious to me clearly isn't to, you know, um, um, students who are still studying. The Constitutional Court has a website that has all of the information you need um, to, 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 to apply. What's so interesting is prior to COVID, uh, Constitutional Court law clerks used to do a drive where they used to go to each university and explain what it means to be a constitutional law clerk, explain what the application procedure entails. And um, because COVID hit when the time that I was there, what we did was we did an explanatory video of, um, you know, what, what kind of attributes a constitutional law clerk needs to have, uh, what we look out for, um, what the requirements are. There's a video on the constitutional court YouTube, which you can watch there. Um, so the fact that it is so mystified is, is quite um, surprising to me only because we try as best as we can to put out that information to reach as many people as possible because we, the Constitutional Court understands that there's, there's so much talent, um, you know, legal talent in even, you know, rural places, which is why we did these, which is why they used to do these drives and going to even your smaller universities to try, you know, reach as many people as possible. So it's not intended to be, you know, um, reserved for a select few of people who've only gone overseas. Um, the Constitutional Court is really a place that really embodies what our constitutional, our constitution is about, right? It, it, it encourages, um, you know, taking on law clerks who obviously must have a good academic record, but who are also from your smaller universities, you know, um, your universities that, that, that are for, you know, some people would say are in your maybe um, rural um, parts of the country. What I would say about going to the constitutional court or anybody who wants to go there is, you need to have a good academic transcript. And in fact, I would say this to any, anybody who wants to get into the legal profession, having a good transcript will open the doors for you um, as you go along, whether you want to be an attorney or in whatever role you want to pursue in the field, right? That's definitely going to help you. Um, I wouldn't discourage people who are straight from varsity from going. There have been clerks who have gone straight from varsity, definitely. Um, there have been, and in fact, at the Constitutional Court, there is a scholarship that is open for students who want to go study overseas. So you see, and, and one of the requirements of that scholarship is you must not have already done your master's. So it's not true that they only take on people who've got master's, because otherwise they wouldn't be the scholarship that's available for people who only hold their undergrad, right? Um, and yeah, so I would say, um, just get more information about it and apply more than once. If you don't get in the first time, there's no limit on the number of times you can apply. Some of the clerks that I was with had applied three, four times and only got in on the fourth time, right? So just because you didn't get in the first time, it doesn't mean you won't get in if you try again, provided you meet the requirements, of course. Um, so yeah, so it, it actually, um, 
I don't know if to say for lack of a better word, saddens me that that people don't know much about it when actually um, the court is trying to 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 inform um, people in the legal profession of what clerkship entails mm -hmm. and actually um, welcomes everyone to come and apply. The only difficulty that there is is limited space, but I think that's the same with any place you apply to, right? So um, as you will know, there are 11 judges at the Constitutional Court and each judge has two clerks, sometimes three. Um, and so that means for each year, the intake is limited to about, you know, that number of people who would, who, who would represent each judge. Um, but, but I don't think that should deter you from applying, you know, just apply. And if you meet the requirements, you really never know whether you're straight from varsity or not. Um, a lot of the clerks uh, had done their articles and then come. Uh, some of them had come straight from varsity to the court. And me, I'd done something that was completely unconventional, which funny enough, I'm now getting a lot of queries about is that I left the bar, clerked, and now I've returned to the bar. Um, I, I, I just really think that each person is, you, you're the master of your own destiny. And just because something hasn't been done before, like in my case, I don't think anybody had left the bar to go clerk and return. Um, it was rather unconventional. But you know what, clocking is something that I really wanted to do. And I was like, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to return to my practice, which I've done. So, um, so yeah, go to the Constitutional Court website. There is an explanatory video and currently applications are open until March. So if you are interested, um, have a look at that video and um, follow those instructions and apply before the end of March. Thank you, thank you. My last question is more of a personal one. Um, what do you wish someone told you on your first day of articles? And what did you know for sure on your last day of articles? <laughs> Jeez, I wish I knew. Um, I wish I was that certain about things by the time I ended my articles. I wish on the first day, I wish I was told to get a mentor. Yeah, I wish I was told to get someone to mentor me through that whole process. Um, like I said, the environment in which I was felt very foreign to me. I didn't really have um, anyone to bounce my ideas off. You know, I was just kind of going with it. Okay, after varsity, you do your articles, then after articles, um, you become an admitted attorney. And, you know, there wasn't in the beginning much intentionality about what I was trying to do because there wasn't as much information as there is now, um, you know, which is now shared so on social media and um, through the different platforms like um, this one. But I, I wish I had someone to mentor me through um, that process. And on the last day, um, what did I know for sure? I knew for sure that in as much as my article's experience was very challenging and at times very difficult, um, that I wouldn't allow that to take me out of practicing law altogether. And I know that that's happened to so many people who could have still been in the uh, practicing today, right? They did their articles, they hated their articles experience 
and they automatically thought to themselves, well, this is not for me. And sometimes you find that it's not the law, but it's the environment. So on my last day, I was like, okay, did my articles, I've passed my board exams, getting admitted. It was tough. It was difficult sometimes, but you know what? I'm staying in this profession. I feel like I can thrive in this profession and I'm going to stay the course. So yeah, I think off the top of my head, <laughs> that's what I would say, stay the course. Sometimes it's not you, it's not the law. Sometimes it's just the environment. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank thank you. you. Brilliant questions. <laughs> her, her questions were incredible. Thank you so much. Lefaya. They were incredible. Questions. Um, I, I hope uh, I was able to answer at least part of it. <laughs> I'm happy I was not on the receiving end. <laughs> so, um, thank you so much, Lekhaonolo. Thank you, ladies. Um, and in closing, Jabu, is there anything that you'd like to um, share with the listener out there, um, whether it, it has to do with the profession, whether it has to do with a social ill that keeps you up at night, um, or a fun fact, is there anything that you'd like to share that I haven't asked you that you think is important um, to put out there while you are, while you are um, here telling us your story? Um, I think I would just go back to what I've already mentioned, um, is if you're new in the profession, um, try seek out a mentor who can walk you through this and who has the capacity to meaningfully engage with you. You know, someone who's been around for some time um, and someone who maybe has gone through the path that you're seeking to go into. Um, and now, you know, with the advent of social media, it is um, not easy, but easier to reach out to people. So don't be afraid, do that. Um, I know that some people have reached out to me um, if there's someone who's out there who you think can assist you or who is able and has the capacity to assist you meaningfully, I would say definitely get yourself a mentor. Help you navigate what can sometimes be um, a tricky space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Ladies, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Um, Jabu, thank you for sharing your story with us. And uh, I really hope that somebody out there has learned something from your specific journey. And I really hope that people will be encouraged to stay the course after listening to this episode. I know I've had a few people reach out to me, um, just mm. really crying about the challenges that they're experiencing during their articles. And like yeah. you said, it is the environment. Um, and yeah. in as much as we say that, sometimes it's very difficult to not take some of these things personally. But yeah. I think at the end of Especially the day, when that, yeah. mm, 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 absolutely. But I think at the end of the day, it's also worth constantly remember, reminding yourself of your why. You know, um, yeah. Why did Definitely. you? Why did you choose this course in the first place? So yeah, thank you, thank you so much, um, ladies. I can't thank you enough. And yeah, I hope twenty twenty two will be incredibly kind to you guys. And I hope it will be a season of restoration and harvest. 
Thank you very much, Tivello. This has been great. <laughs> All right, ladies, bye. All right, bye.